Tonight's scripture reading is from Psalm 5, and you can find that on page 544 of the Bibles in the pews. Psalm 5, let us listen to God's word. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sign. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Amen. At this point in our, our service, I thought it might be an idea to bring our, our speaker up uh, for this evening, who's Tony uh, Wilson. So I'm going to invite Tony and Ursula, if possible, as well. So if you want to come up to the front. Um, I, I've got to know Tony and Ursula when, when I was an assistant in, in Hamlin Road. Um, I think you'd, you'd started to come about a year or two to Hamlin Road at that stage when I had just begun my assistantship in Hamlin Road. Um, and here, come, come sit together or stand together. Um, and I, I suppose partly I, I wanted to hear a little bit, of, and to tell Bloomfield as well, a little bit about your missionary experience overseas. Uh, but let me, let me start by this, because some people won't know you, but tell, tell us a little about where you're from. You'll, you'll tell in a moment where Tony's from with his accent in, in a few minutes, but tell us a bit about yourself and, and your family particularly. Will that be all right? If you come. Well, I'm from here. Tony isn't. <laughs> I'm from Belfast originally, and uh, I grew up here, educated here went to Colerain when Bill Adley was the Presbyterian chaplain, 1968. Um, and then I worked uh, as a teacher, school teacher, primary school teacher. And I taught in Cairns Hill Primary School uh, for a number of years. Uh, we have three children and they're all married and we have five grandchildren. Great. Thanks, Ursula. And Tony? Well, I'm from Yorkshire, Harrogate in Yorkshire. You know Harrogate? You know Betty's? Yes. Good. We're on common ground. That's good. We can, we can be friends. Do you, do you understand what he's saying? <laughs> well, if you can understand him, you can understand me, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm still trying to work out what tree means. <laughs> they're, they're well used to that. And now, what's it for? <laughs> Sorry, Damien. The good friend is Damien, and we, we loved him daily at Hamilton Road. So I was brought up in Yorkshire, born and bred, and... Uh, yeah, I love cricket like all Yorkshiremen do. Wanted to be a Yorkshire cricketer, but it never worked out that way. And uh, 
And I, and I started to work for, uh, after school, I started to work for a, a firm of lawyers, worked for lawyers for 10 years and really enjoyed myself and uh, it was a challenging job. And then uh, I felt called of God and I thought I'd just do some Bible education and did that. And then after, uh, I met Ursula actually at Bible College and then thereafter we went uh, to Thailand together as missionaries. Ursula told you already we had three children and actually she is my wife. <laughs> and Tony you, and Ursula, you were both in, in pastoral ministry in England for a short time, and then you said 30, 30 years in Thailand uh, as missionaries. T- tell us a little bit, just a little bit about what that was like and what you were doing in, in Thailand over, over 30 years. Um, you were with Elam, is that right? That's right. Well, the first thing you do when you get to Thailand is you suffer the heat, then you suffer the noise of the dogs. Every night they let the dogs out and Throughout the night, I don't know how anybody sleeps in Thailand, they just let these howling dogs out. So we had to get used to culture, heat, food, and everything. But you, God brings, to you all, brings us through, through all that. And I went to language school with Ursula, and Thai is a tonal language. Now, we just speak on a straight line, but there's cow, 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 cow. And they all have different words. So if you get cow... When you should be saying cow, or if you say cow, when you should say cow, they all look at you. And I used to think they were partially deaf. <laughs> so I used to shout at them. But anyway, after about 18 months of that, we went up country, we started to church plant, and we went to villages. And in those days, there was no running water in the villages, there was no electricity, it was just thatched roofs, uh, and we church planted. And we started church plant, and we kept on going church planting in the three different uh, major areas of Thailand. One in the north, in Chiang Mai, you must have heard of Chiang Mai. And uh, then we moved across to Korat in the northeast. And the northeast people are what I call like blotting paper. Even though they were Buddhists and far off from God, uh, yeah, they responded wonderfully well to the gospel. Now, Wherever you go in Thailand, there's always the demonic. We don't really talk about the demonic here back home. It's almost a forgotten chapter in the scripture. But if you look at the book of Mark, Jesus forever was meeting with the demonic. And there in Thailand, it's right up in your face. You cannot escape it wherever you go. And you have to learn to live above that and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what thrilled us more than anything was that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to as many as believe. And what was wonderful to see was many, many people coming out of Buddhism and getting gloriously saved and transformed. Now, a Buddhist can look at you straight in the eye and tell you a rank lie. I don't know how many times I was proved to be very gullible But that's how they are. But to watch people come out of that from darkness into light is one of the most enjoyable things. And for 30 years we did that. We came home every every four years, sometimes nearly five years, sometimes three years, for six months and we went back. Our three children grew up in that environment, loved every moment of it. The children never regret that they were brought up in the dirty streets of dusty rural Thailand. And... uh, yeah, we saw the power of God, and I loved every minute. The worst thing that ever happened to me in Thailand was the day I retired. 
coming home on the plane, I just thought, I can't believe it. And I sat and I thought, where did 30 years go? But the wrinkles prove it, don't they? <laughs> Good. And, and, and one of the things you'll see with Tony and Ursula, which, which struck me in Hammond Road, if, if you don't mind me saying, is, is their vibrancy spiritually and, and how alive they are for the Lord Jesus and, and serving him. And I suppose that's my next question. You know, how, how has been the retirement time of, of your life? Has it been a bit of an adjustment? I know you're closer to the family yeah. uh, at this point. but Yes, it has been an adjustment. Uh, I'm not sure if I've made that adjustment yet, but it has been an adjustment. Um, and coming home, things have changed, as you know. Our society's changing round about us. Um, and I find that in Thailand, it was very, in a sense, easy, even though you, you as Tony said, it was, the darkness was palpable. You could reach out almost and touch it. The darkness of people who don't know Christ and years and generations of bowing before idols and worshipping that which is not God and uh, a lot of spiritism and animism. So you didn't have to say, do I believe, am I really a Christian or not? I mean, you just saw the glorious light uh, of the gospel uh, when you compared it to what you were working amongst. Uh, But coming home, then everybody's very nice, you see. Everybody's lovely. And you may deny God, uh, uh, but you're a very nice person and you may be doing more good than I am. And that can have a, quite a devastating effect on you. So you, you, th- there is a battle. There's a battle to, to hold on to God and to trust God when you're not seeing that, that sort of uh, great uh, comparison as, that you, you see when you're working in a what would really be a heathen country. Mm-hmm. You don't see that. But God is faithful, and so many times uh, we have seen his goodness to us in, in adjusting and in, in people being friendly with us and welcoming us home and encouraging us in the church. And, of course, the wonderful thing is that the word of God doesn't change, even though we do, and we've been so blessed to sit under tremendous ministry in the church we're in, and we do praise the Lord for that. Well, look, it's lovely to, to see you again. They, they are here after the service, so with a cup of tea, come, come and chat to them more about their work in Thailand and their retirement time as well. Elizabeth Lewis is going to come now and, and lead us in our, our prayers for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift and privilege of prayer, knowing, as David did in the Psalms, that when we come to you, you hear us and answer our cries. We give you thanks, for great is your faithfulness, O Lord. We live in a world of great contrasts, a world of great beauty, where where we are able to look around and see the wonder of your creation, but also a world where millions of people live in places of devastation caused by war and destruction. We pray for those whose lives are lived not in beautiful places, but in refugee camps or struggling to find somewhere safe. We think of so many displaced people in the world. We pray for an end to violence that drives people from their homes. We pray for people to begin to live their lives again, to recover from the mental trauma of all that they have seen and been through. We pray especially for children who have seen such horrors that their minds have been badly affected. 
Lord, we pray for those who are able to help, that they would have the freedom to do that, and that you would touch and heal the lives of many. We live in a world of plenty, where some people have every comfort they could imagine or want, but also a world where millions of people live in poverty and hunger. We continue to pray for East Africa, where so many people are desperate for food, health care, security, in despair with so little hope. Lord, you see their need, and we thank you that you have called people to serve you, to bring not just immediate help, but also long-term hope to change broken lives. We live in a world where we still have the freedom to worship you and live for you openly, but a world where millions live with actual and threatened persecution. Forgive us, for we are so complacent and so careless in our walk with you. We pray for your people, Lord, draw near to them, bringing healing, comfort, strength, courage, and hope to enable them to remain firm in their faith. We live in a world where there is great injustice, but we thank you that the day is coming when you, Lord Jesus, will return and make all things new. We pray for the people injured in the acid attacks in London, for physical and emotional healing, and for a 16-year-old boy accused of this, Lord, we pray that you would open his heart and mind and turn him away from violence. We ask that you be with the family devastated by the death of their six-year-old son. In their darkness and sorrow, may they experience your peace and comfort. We pray for Helen in Japan as she goes on holiday next week after a busy year's work. May she find that a time of relax, relaxation and refreshing. We pray for Simone in Nepal that you would be with her, give her strength for all she needs to do. And we pray for all who are leading camps and missions this week. As tensions in the area die down, we pray for the walkway summer scheme. We pray it will go well and that relationships will be built. We pray for the seniors as they go to Allen this week. We pray it would be a special day for relationships to be built there too. We pray for Tony and Ursula. Thank you for the opportunities that they have had to serve you in Thailand. And we pray that you would continue to use them, to bless them, and to use them to bless others. Be with Tony as he teaches us from your word and give us understanding. And for each other, for those who are grieving, those who are anxious about the future or who are struggling in the present, help us to trust you completely, knowing you see and know our fears and our hopes and our joys. We pray for those on holiday. Pray for Damien and family as they go off tomorrow. May they all be refreshed and renewed in spirit. Lord, we pray, trusting in your grace and mercy, for great is your faithfulness, O Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is so nice to be with you this evening in Bloomfield. It's only the second time I've been here. The first time was when uh, Damien was inducted. Ordained. Is that right, Dim? <laughs> it's so nice to be with you, and uh, already I've been blessed as we worship together through the, through the songs we've sung. Uh, I noticed as the Bible was read tonight, the Psalm 5, it was read from the NIV, the 1890, sorry, the 1984 version. And mine dropped to bits, and I bought a new one, and it's the 2011 version. So one or two words may vary, like mercy 
has become love and different things like that. But basically, the, the story is just the same. So let's just pray before we look into God's word. Heavenly Father, tonight, we thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. We know, Lord, it's not just printer's ink and paper. It's a two-edged sword. It's sharper even so. And we just thank you, Lord, tonight that we have this opportunity, this freedom to look into it. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. This night we pray, Lord, that we shall be challenged as we look into it and that the Holy Spirit will come down upon us and open our eyes to see new things, open our ears to hear of new things that we've not heard of before, maybe, but that we'll have a heart that has been opened by the Spirit to receive the word of God and accept it as such and thereby Live by it. We pray that Jesus will be glorified as we look into this psalm this night for the time that's set before us. We ask it in your name, Lord. Amen. Psalm 5 is described here as a psalm of David in the, in the heading. But in verse 7, the word house and temple are used. So some people would think, oh, it must be later than David. It has to be sometime after the temple has been built by Solomon. But on a closer look at the scriptures, you'll find that in Exodus itself, for the tabernacle that Moses built, the word house and temple are used. So to me, it's quite fitting to call this a Psalm of David written by David himself. Now, Psalm 5 is really a personal prayer of David who had personal problems at that particular time. Now, as we read it together, we may not have had time to really understand what we read, but we may have seen there that mm, as a Christian, living in the light of Jesus' teaching, could I take this prayer that I've just read and recite it to God as coming from my heart? For you see in verse 10, as you look, if you look to verse 10 with me, this is what David says. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. He's calling down vengeance upon these people. And is it a prayer that we as Christians could copy and use in our devotions. Now, David is in trouble. He's in serious trouble. He is the king of Israel. But men have come against him. And it's not a, a national enemy that's come against him, like Moab or someplace, but it's people who are his personal enemies. Now, this David we're reading about is the man who went out with a sling and five stones and toppled Goliath when he fell to the ground, he drew his sword, Goliath's sword, and lopped off his head. And from that moment, David becomes a man of war. And he is the king of Israel. And he reigns supreme. And he has the right to bear the sword. But he is not willing in any wise to spill the blood of those who hate him. It's obvious from this psalm here. Now, as a young man, David uh, learned 
not to take things into his own hands, as often we do when we're troubled by people. He always feared the Lord. He was anointed by Samuel to become the future king. Saul hounded him like a, a flea upon a hillside or like a, a partridge. But he would never put out his hand to touch the Lord's anointed. Even in the back of a cave with his men when Saul walked in, his enemy, and David could have taken his life. As his men incited him to do it, David could restrain himself. He would not touch the Lord's anointed. He would not take things into his own hands. Of course, he learned another lesson for the rank and file of Israel, that you don't do that either. You don't take things into your own hands. He looked after Nabal's shepherds and there came a time when Nabal was shearing and David wanted a few sheep to slaughter for his men. He went to ask for some. Nabal sent his men back packing and mocking them in the process. And David was outraged and angered and he went for his sword. No longer a sling, it's a sword. He straps it on and goes with his men. But in the time that was to come, just before he got to Nabal's home, God intervened. And God kept David from shedding blood. God kept him completely innocent. But now he is the king with immense power and immense authority. Surely you can do this. Surely you can get rid of his enemies quite easily without losing a night's sleep. But in verse 2 we read this. He trusts in God who is his king. He has a sovereign over him. And that sovereign is well able to look after him and watch over him, even in the difficulties that he is facing. Now what he's facing in Psalm 5 is, as we look at it carefully, would be that men have slandered him and slandered him rather badly. But all David will do in this particular particular case. He doesn't go and talk and whisper and gossip about it. He takes the thing into the tabernacle before God and there he bows his knee and there he pours out his heart before God. But to me it seems a strange thing in this generation of following Jesus that he feels he can ask for vengeance and there he does ask God. It's God's right to recompense the evildoer. So he prays for vengeance on his enemies and not an ounce of mercy. Vengeance and no mercy. But we aren't taught by David. We aren't taught under the Old Testament scriptures, really, although they still have an effect upon our lives and they still have a meaning for us. But our teacher is none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies. And Jesus said, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Now the leaders of the day thought they were doing God a service when they took Jesus and arrested him and eventually took him to Golgotha and there they nailed him to the cross and there they mocked him thinking they were doing God a good service. But on that cross as Jesus gave his life away for the redemption of mankind, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this seems to become a principle in the life of Christians. For when in Acts chapter 6, Stephen was maliciously accused of poor, poor theology, 
was taken before the Sanhedrin, and there he gave a good account of himself as being so wonderfully alive in God's word. But they became angry with him, and they took him outside at the end of chapter 7, and there they picked up the stones to, to stone this blasphemer. And as he knelt down with the stones raining down upon him and round him, he prayed just like his Lord and Savior did. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now what would have taken place, now we have to imagine this a wee bit, and we might be on dicey ground with using our imaginations, but what would it have been like had Stephen said, Lord, Execute vengeance upon this riffraff. Let's see a vengeance come down. For a young man named Saul was stood there, who was sentenced to Saul's death, uh, to Stephen's death, and he was guarding the clothes. And if God had answered a prayer like that, would we have Saul, who became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and would we have received? Half of the New Testament scriptures that enlighten us and encourage us and exhort us day by day. I think there is a difference here between old and new prayers. While the old has a bearing in our lives and throws light upon the character of God for us, there's still lessons that we cannot follow in the lives of the Old Testament saints. Like a coin. A coin has two sides, and every argument, of course, has two sides. And we see in the New Testament that God is love. And we see that through the person of Jesus Christ, and that great sacrifice of laying himself down on the cross and taking our sins upon him. What love indeed. But the other side of the coin is this, that God is righteous. God is holy. And God is just, and he will not let the unrepentant wicked go unpunished. We know that this is a moral universe in which we live. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, to save it. But the gospel announces another side of God's grace and goodness. And God, and then the gospel, we see there's a day of vengeance coming. For God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the one who came to save them, namely his son, Jesus Christ. So we as Christians in this generation, we're going to come through a number of times in our lives, I guess, when we go through difficulties from those around us. And it can be a form of affliction, it can be persecution, it can be so many things. We can be ostracized, we can be neglected, we can, many things can happen to us. But Paul teaches clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says this, God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as unto us. Now, God is just, you see. He has the right skills. He knows when to do it. But when is the time that this vengeance of God will take place upon the enemies of those who follow Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in that passage, 
in 2 Thessalonians. It's when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So we are troubled and we can pray. But how should we pray? It's a good thing to look at. For we see the prayers of the saints in the New Testament. In fact, the curtains of heaven is just pulled back for John to look into it. And he sees those that have been martyred for their faith under the, under the altar. And they are praying. What are they praying? These spirits of just men made perfect. They say this to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long will it be before you judge and avenge, avenge our blood on, the, on those who dwell on the earth? And of course, there will be a time, but not just now. It will take place on the day of judgment. So here we are in this Psalm 5. David is calling down judgment on his enemies. Do it, Lord. And what he really wants to, do, to see is, See it with his own eyes. There's nothing more pleasurable to see. God judge, I guess, those who are troubling. And of course, this happened in the life of Jeremiah. God, in, in, in the life of Jeremiah, revealed to Jeremiah that there were those who were plotting his death. It happens in, in Jeremiah chapter 11. You might like to read it as you go home. And of course, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's the man who knows all about prayer and intercession. And he takes the matter that God has revealed him back to God. And he says this. Let me see the vengeance on them. That's the Old Testament spirit. You see, they're holy people. They know God is holy. And perhaps we have forgotten just what how bad sin is. Perhaps we're grey and not white and pure as we should be. But truly these men saw these sins as heinous things in God's sight. And they kept themselves clean from it. Now, Jesus, I don't know how you see his teaching, but many times when you're reading the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you can shudder at the things that Jesus actually says. He, he talks of love. He talks of many wonderful things. But if we get to Matthew 10, 23, there are seven woes. Seven woes. Woe unto you Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law. And he peels out the reason for these woes that are coming. This hypocrisy. This wickedness that they're willing to... to use their lives for. And then he, he, he gets one after another out, and then he gets as far as, as far as verse 35, and he says this word, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zachariah, son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And if we don't like Pharisees and scribes, it's like, good, <laughs> the day's coming. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus continues. 
in a couple of sentences, he comes out with that most marvelous statement to saying all these woes that are coming on these people of Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones them who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yes, a day will come, but the heart of Almighty God is not now. This is the day of grace. This is the day of mercy. And Jesus shows it clearly. Those wicked, wicked men, even those wicked people, he would have gathered into his arms bathed them with love and forgiven them freely had they repented. His blood would have cleansed them from all their sins. But we can learn a lot from David's psalm here. We can learn more about our prayer life here. And what we see in this prayer of David's here is that prayer is a regular feature in David's life. And he doesn't come before God in all his frustrations and think, what can I say? He's articulate right from the word go. He doesn't find it difficult to marshal his thoughts in the presence of Almighty God. And he doesn't find it difficult to get a coherent sentence out to tell God exactly what he wants. You see, David has a routine in his life. And these few opening verses show how routine it is. It's a daily occurrence. In fact, it's one of the first things he does at the beginning of a new day. While his life is fresh, his soul cleaves after God and there he goes to pour out his heart. It, is, it appears, though, as we're looking further into this, that not only does he set the day apart, the early part of the day to pray, and have order in that, but it's how he lays his prayers before God. They're not just haphazard, from here to there prayers, and, and without order in them. They are, they're ordered, well-ordered prayers as you look at them. And he says here in verse 3, I lay my requests before you. Now, the word to lay the requests here is a word used in three different ways in the Old Testament. Now, that book that none of us like to read, but it's so rich, the book of Leviticus, you know, all those animal sacrifices and there's all the different classes of sacrifices. Let's go on to the next book, pretty sharp. But it's amazing that when the, when the animal was slaughtered, and brought to the altar. It wasn't just heaved, and, and heaved on top of the altar. They, the pieces were laid in order. When Abraham had traveled days to Moriah with, with his son to, to make his biggest sacrifice that he thought he'd ever have to make, and he built the altar, he took the wood that they had carried, and he didn't just throw it on top of the altar. He laid it in position. Why? 
to get maximum power out of the flames to bring an end as quickly as he could to the life of the one he loved the most. And it, so it is with the bread of his presence that's in the altar. It's laid there in order. You lay it correctly before God. And so David lays his requests before God in a particular order. Now, why does he have to lay it in order? Because he's a military man. Men who are military-minded will think of a course of action. How do I take my armies out to battle? Is in fact cooks down the back bringing the lunch with them. It's all worked out exactly the order of the army going and the army fighting. And of course, the Old Testament story of, of Israel uprooted from its camp had an order for setting out. It wasn't just chaotic. And David uses this. For you see, he is a warrior. He's a prayer warrior. And he brings his petitions to God in order. In order of doing it. And so it is, he's a man of faith, for there he is, waiting expectantly for God to answer. He comes in faith, he believes that God is, and he's a reward of those that diligently seek him. And without faith, it's not possible to, to please God. So he comes in faith, he's coming to a high priest, God himself, who knows his, the feeling of his infirmities. And he has access into his presence. Now in verse 7, there's just a slight difference between what I've got and what you've got there. But I, by your great mercy, I believe you've got, can come into your house. But I've got, by your great love, I come into your house. So mercy and love, there's hardly any difference in the actual Hebrew there. But what we understand is this, that that love and mercy is, is shown to, to David through the covenant. God has made a covenant a promise made on blood. This will happen forever. And day by day, that covenant love is revealed to him. That steadfast love, the faithfulness of God is new every day. And every morning, he can come before God through that covenant and never be refused. And so it is with us. God has made a new covenant with us. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are put away. Our sins are behind his back. Our sins are forgiven once and for all. Now, if you make this statement, please don't go and say, well, that fellow's a heretic from Yorkshire. From our past to our present to our future, we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. We are saved from our sins. And God allows us to come to his throne of grace. How boldly. We can boldly approach the throne of grace and we too can pour out our hearts to God, this God of love and mercy. And so David here, he prays. And there's three parts to his prayer. He definitely prays against the wicked in verse 4, 5 and 6. He says, they have evil lips, they have evil hearts, they lie intentionally, their throat is like an open sepulcher. Well, it's just like a grave full of dead men's bones with putrefied face. That's how their lives are. And a stench to him as he sees their lives. And he prays for this vengeance upon them. But then the second part of his prayer is that God would keep him from the wickedness 
that these men have fallen into. And what a prayer. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And Jesus said that we had to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, and David is praying to be kept on the straight and narrow. He's gone through the narrow gate that leads to life, and that's where he wants to stay. And then he starts to intercede for God's people. It's not just me, 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 me. He starts to pray for God's people as well, namely the righteous, those who take refuge in God, that they may sing for joy. Do you know, I can't think of one Presbyterian church in England. They're all, they're all here in Ireland. <laughs> it's great to go to Presbyterian church. We love it. But I've heard from a Presbyterian pulpit, we're not very good. This is what they say about themselves. We're not very good about joy. <laughs> he clapped his hands. You know, you know what I mean? Not very good about joy. But David here wants them to be glad and sing for joy. There's something about seeing how great God is. Not just his holiness. Not just that he's just and one day it's all going to happen. But that he loves me with an everlasting love. It's happened now. <laughs> joy. Joy of the Holy Spirit. He's changed our mourning into joy. Isn't it a wonderful thing that David prays upon his people? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to pray upon every Presbyterian church in Northern Ireland? Let them all come on Sunday full of joy. Well, I think it would anyway. <laughs> so David's at prayer. And let me conclude because it's now eight o'clock. All around us, even as Ursula intimated as she was speaking there, the world is upside down. It's inside out. What has been called good for years is now called bad. And what has been bad is now elevated as good. What has been bitter and nasty is now elevated as something sweet. And beautiful. And all this stuff grows with more and more intensity. Week by week. We see it all around us. We see Christians beleaguered. And many, many areas of work. And church life. And how do we pray in these circumstances? Well, Paul said pray. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come back. Oh, that we might have that vision. For the day Jesus Christ does return, we shall be redeemed, we shall be changed, we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and then the door of the gospel will be closed, and God's judgment will take place. But how, how would the apostles, do you think? How would the first century Christians who... who, who had so much trouble from the Jews and, the, and Rome itself pray. I've just finished with a couple of illustrations here. It's always good to be truthful to Scripture, isn't it? I love the Apostle Paul. I love him. 
He is such an example to me. But he was a man. And he had been arrested when he got back to Jerusalem from his missionary travels. And he was arrested and incarcerated and looked like he wasn't going to have much of a future. When he was called before the council again and the Romans were there examining the whole situation as well. And Paul made a brief description and, Anna, and the high priest was sat close by and he ordered somebody to slap Paul on the mouth. And Paul turned on him and said, you hypocrite, have you come to judge me according to the Lord, law and will not live by the law? God will smite you, you whitewashed wall. It was out before you can think about it. And we've all been there. And we've said the thing that is not the thing to say. Paul, a man of grace, wound up completely. He just missed the mark again. But he did apologize. He knows as well as we tonight that God has his time when God will vindicate his people. God will put the wrongs right for his people. And up to that day, friends, it's for us to leave it in God's capable hands. Pray for your enemies. I mean, one day my wicked, sinful life changed. Somebody had been praying for me. I sort of remained in my sin and headed for a godless eternity. But somebody was praying. One day I saw the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And mercy flooded my soul. And it has never, ever left me. Day after day after day, the mercy of God flowing in like a river. It's wonderful. You know it is. When we see those people we don't like, when we like to Tell them a thing or two, or God to break a few necks round here. Just think of mercy. For you see, that's what God's doing. He is forbearant. He doesn't want any to perish. He has this long suffering with people. And that long suffering should teach us and bring us to repentance. And that's what God wants in this world. He loves as Jesus Christ did when he was declaring those woes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together under my wings. So there we are, friends. Pray for mercy and be like Jesus. Amen? Let's just conclude our service with just a prayer first and then we'll, we'll sing a song. Heavenly Father, tonight we come into your presence we're amazed and stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love us, sinners, condemned and clean. It wasn't vengeance we got, Lord, it was mercy. Mercy was great and grace was free. 
pardon at the cross was multiplied to me. And oh, Father, I pray that you'll help us to be like Jesus. Send your spirit into our hearts to be concerned about the wickedness of, of those we love around us, and those we know. Help us to shine with grace in our hearts to those, Lord, who need a touch of the Spirit to bring them to you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. The end of this Sunday, and we thank you for this Sunday, and we pray that you'll continue to bless us throughout this working week. We ask it in your name. Amen.